0: Introducing Mark's Gospel to you. <clears throat> We're going to have a, a sermon series, and all the other preachers get to preach on one chapter, and I get to preach on the whole lot. So I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, we'll be here till about quarter to five on Tuesday night. Is that okay with you? Right. Good. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about Mark's gospel as background. Um, a gospel just means good news, um, and there are four accounts in the Bible of the life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, They all come from slightly different perspectives. Um, It's not that one's true and the other one isn't. They're all just different people's tellings of the same story, and Mark is one of them. And if you've never read um, the Bible, if you've never read a gospel and you wanted a way in, Mark is a brilliant place to start. It's the shortest. Um, If you can, read it as a sitting. I tell you, it is white knuckle, seat of the pants sort of stuff. It's really exciting. In preparation for this, I read it as a sitting twice, and it really is um, breathtaking. So, read it as the sitting, then read it slowly, read it fast. Mark's a great place to start. Towards the end of the Bible, about there, okay? Right. Here's another book I like. It's called um, The Murder, Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. Who's read it? Handful, handful. Right, so, um, towards the end, on page 229... Agatha Christie tells us who the murderer is. Should I tell you? Mm-hmm. No, I won't tell you. I won't spoil. Because you don't want to know at the end, do you? No, you don't know at the end of the beginning, do you? In fact, she doesn't start by telling us who the murderer is. She tells us. Starts off by telling us, Mrs. Ferrars died on the night of the 16th, and the 17th of September, a Thursday. I was sent for at eight o'clock on the morning of Friday the 17th. There was nothing to be done. She had been dead some hours. Detective stories don't start by telling you who done it, because that would spoil it. What detective stories do is they start by laying out the murder, and then they give you some clues, but they hide them, don't they? They make it difficult, they, they, they conceal them. And then at the end, ta-da, this amazing you denouement. If you haven't read it, it's brilliant. You, you, it'll get you, I guarantee it. Right, enough about Agatha Christie. Mark isn't a detective writer, and uh, Mark clearly hasn't um, read the, the manual of how to uh, write um, a story that shocks you at the end. Because Mark starts his gospel this way. This is the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Sort of enough said, really, isn't it, really? Mark doesn't follow the, uh, the pattern of detective writers. He tells us right at the beginning, this is who I'm talking about. In fact, Mark tells us really insistently all the way through his gospel, this is the Son of God. And he tells us through the mouths of lots of different people. So he starts off the narrator, beginning, and starts off, as I've read, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The next voice is God's himself, Father God's himself. Jesus goes into the Jordan to be baptized, and as he comes up, heaven is broken open, and the voice of God says, this is my beloved Son. And then we get some different voices. And early in his ministry, Jesus has a number of confrontations with the demonic powers, and the demons know very well who He is. "I know who you are," says one. "You are the Holy One of God." "You are the Son of God," says the second. And the third one says, "What have you come to? What do you want to do with me? "Son of the Most High God." The demons are in little doubt. And Mark shows us through them. Who Jesus is. And then Jesus, later on in his ministry, in, in Mark chapter 9, he goes up a mountain with his friends. And when he's up on the mountain, all that is um, sort of earthly about him is stripped away. And they get this glimpse of him as the son of God. And the voice of God comes again. This is my beloved son. Listen to what he's got to say to you. Jesus comes down the mountain and makes his way to Jerusalem, the place where he's going to die. And at his trial, the high priest charges him with this question Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. And then after his death, as he hangs on the cross, lifeless, his executioner says, Surely this man was the Son of God. So this truth is testified to by reluctant witnesses, by his followers by his enemies, by his own testimony, and by the word of God, the voice of God himself. Mark is determined that we'll get the message. He puts it at the beginning, and he threads it right through his gospel. Not only does he tell us, though, he shows us. Oh, you classic story, classic thing about storytelling. Don't just tell me, show me. If you read any, any, uh, any uh, manual on how to tell a story. Show me, don't tell me. So he shows us. And what would you expect the Son of God to do if he came to earth? What would you expect? Well, Mark is, again, very insistent about this. This man has authority over the evil spirits. He says, go, and they go. He says, be silent, and they're silent. This man has authority to teach one of the first things that we read is he goes into the synagogue, because that's like his home church in his hometown, and he teaches, and the people are going, oh, something amazing going on here. This man teaches with authority. He has authority over sickness and death. He sees a little girl in front of him, dead and cooling, and he says to a little girl, up you get, and up she gets. He has the authority to forgive sins. Do you remember the story of the four friends who brought the brought sick man to him for healing? And he says, your sins are forgiven. Oh, and by the way, get up and walk, just so, you, just so I can show that I have the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to beckon people. He has, the, has authority over other people follow me, he says, and guess what? They get up and follow him. He has authority over nature. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story when he was on a boat with his friends, and the storm got up. And uh, they have some really wicked storms up on the Lake of Galilee there. And his friends were hardened fishermen, and they were scared for their lives. And they managed to wake him up, because he's asleep in the back of the back of the boat, and they wake him up, and he stands there, and he just says, peace, be still, and everything calms down. This is a man with authority, so as you'd expect of the Son of God, if he came to walk on earth, he is a man who has authority, authority to heal, authority to forgive, authority to teach, authority to command men, authority of a nature, and one that I've forgotten, authority to, I don't know what the other one was, but anyway, you get the message, forgive, thank you. So Marx setting out to make this point really clearly. He's not hiding it like Agatha Christie would. He's telling us and he's showing us this is the Son of God. This is an extraordinary story about an extraordinary person. Pay attention. That's what he's saying. But interestingly, even though he's already answered the question and continues to answer it all the way through his book, he also asks a question. And I think it's a device to draw us in and make us ask the question, to challenge us with the question. And the question that he asks is this Who is this man? Who is he? Now he's answering it, but he's also asking it. And he asks it in a lot of voices. Have a look at this. In his home church, in the, that beginning, um, that first preach, his first synagogue, his, his, his friends and his community and his neighbors say, What is this? A new teaching what's going on? Who's this bloke? When he healed that man, the one he forgave, you know, the one who was lowered through the roof, the critics were sitting there, you know, like they do. You know. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When he calms the storm, his disciples say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. He goes back and visits his home church and preaches again. And this time they say, where did this man get all these thoughts from? Because isn't he just a carpenter? Isn't he just Mary's son? Isn't he? And then a young man comes chasing after him one day on the road, saying, master, master, I know you've got the answers. Tell me the answer. What do I need for eternal life? Good teacher. What do I need for eternal life? And the first thing Jesus says to him is, "Why? tell me, why do you call me good? Isn't it only God who's good? Do you hear the challenge in that? Who who am I? Who am I actually? His own followers who'd been living with him and and, uh, walking with him for for, for months, if not years, one day they were out in the boat on their own without him. And it was dark. And he walks over the water to catch them up. And uh, they saw this figure coming across the water. And they go, who is it? Is it a ghost? Who is it? Who is this man? Mark is really insistent with this question, isn't he? And then right at the apex, right at the hinge of Mark's gospel, we have this, and I'm going to read this to you. This is from Mark chapter 8. This is the turning point. Mark's gospel is a game of two halves, and this is the middle bit. I'm starting to read from verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say, I am? They replied, Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say you're one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say, I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So if we could go back to the slide we were on, Susanna. Thank you. Um, Again and again, he's asking these questions. Who is this man? Who is this man? And there at the hinge of Mark's gospel comes the question, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? It continues. He goes into the temple in the final week of his life, and he clears the temple, and the, uh, the authorities catch up with him the next day and say, who gave you authority to do this? Who do you think you are, in other words? And as we've already seen, the high priest at his trial says, are you? The Christ? Says you. Pilate, at the following trial, because Jesus had more than one, are you the king of the Jews? But the question comes down to us, doesn't it? It's not just a, a, a flat narrative of history. It's a question that comes to us. Who do you say I am? Says Jesus. So Mark, his priority is both to answer and ask the question. He wants to make it absolutely clear so that we are in no doubt. then he wants to point the finger right at us and saying, who do you say I am? What do you say about it? But that's not enough. You see, if we could just look again at that list of all the people in Mark's gospel who said, you are the son of God. As we've already pointed out, some of them were his enemies. Some of them were the people who didn't believe in him. Some of them were people who weren't prepared to trust him. And some of them were demons. You see, it's not good enough to have creedal orthodoxy. It's not good enough to sit there and say, you're the son of God, because the demons do that. So Mark's question to us is, what are you going to do about it? And what I want to do now is just look at... um, Just a a couple of characters, or a few characters, um, who meet Jesus. And if you read through the Gospel of Mark at one sitting, one of the main characters that will really jump out at you, jumped out at me this week, one of the main characters is the crowd. Um, And let's have a little look at how the crowd builds, because in the first half of Mark's Gospel, up to that bit I read you, up to that hinge point, you've got this absolute sense of the crowd building and building and building and crushing in around him. Listen to this. Right at the beginning of his ministry, the people were amazed, and news about him spread. The word started to get out. The following morning, Jesus goes off to pray, and his disciples come after him, saying, Everyone's looking for you. It's an everyone now. Just a few, just half a chapter on, I think it is, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But still the people came out to him in the countryside, from everywhere. By the beginning of chapter 2, so many people are crushing into a house that there's physically no way in through the door anymore, and people who want to get to him are coming through the roof. And then shortly after that, Jesus just needs some time alone with his disciples. And he goes away, and the crowd come after him. In fact, the crowd come after him to such an extent that they crowd him off the land onto the water. They're pushing him and squeezing him and jostling him so much that he can't get any distance to speak to them. And he can't, he's physically being jostled. And so that he will not be crushed, he gets into a boat, where presumably he gets a little bit of personal space. By the middle of chapter 3, we read that such a crowd was gathering that he and his disciples weren't even having time to eat. He's, he's on a journey, middle of chapter 5. He's on a journey, and he feels a touch someone who's touched him with faith for healing and he feels the power and so he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you, they're pressing in around you. And then he feeds 5,000 people. And a little bit later, he feeds 4,000 people. And then we get to the bit I read, to that hinge point of Mark's gospel. And what does he say? He says, first of all, he says, I'm going to the cross and secondly, he says, and if you want to follow me, you take up your own crosses. And from then on, you just get this sense that the crowd is losing its enthusiasm a little bit. Because from that point on, he talks continually about the cross that he's going to and about the cost of discipleship for us. And, and the crowd still gets mentioned, but you haven't got, at the beginning half, you've got this problem, this sense that actually the crowd is even a problem that because there's so many of them, you know, that they're, they're stopping him from eating, they're making it difficult for people to get to him. And, you know, the, the crowd is so intense. And towards the end, you just get this feeling that the crowd isn't such a major, factor, major feature. So what do we have? Um, we have a, a crowd around the disciples when he comes down from the mountain arguing with the teachers. We have people bringing little children for him to touch and, and, and the disciples trying to send them away. And then he has this really interesting bit where he's on the road to Jerusalem, and uh, it says, the disciples are astonished, while those who are following are afraid. And it's interesting to work out what that means, but there's a sense of fear and intimidation as they go down to Jerusalem, and also possibly relating back to what's just been said, which is those words to the rich young man, when he says, how, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so sandwiched between those words about the cost of discipleship and the road to Jerusalem, you've got the people actually starting to walk in fear now and, and, and must be uneasy. It's not feeling quite comfortable anymore. Oh, a little bit of an upturn. Palm Sunday, you remember? It's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Crowd turns out, cloaks, palm branches, Hosanna, welcome to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the Sunday, by the Thursday, when he's arrested in the garden. Entirely on his own. Every single person has fled. The crowd gathers again by morning, but this time it's a hostile crowd. And Pilate hands him over to be crucified in order to appease the crowd. And then he hangs on a cross, and all the men have left him, and even the women are just, just at a distance. So, that's the crowd. That's the crowd in Mark's Gospel. There's lots more to say about the crowd, but I have a question for you. And the question is this. Are you one of the crowd following Jesus? Are you someone who follows at a distance, perhaps can tick the boxes, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, yeah, that's fine, I I, I sign up to that. And you're following at a distance, but you haven't sort of elbowed your way to the front. You haven't had a personal encounter with him. You haven't ever really followed him. You haven't ever really counted the cost of discipleship. And you're one of the crowd. Because today is the day you could meet him. Today is the day. You can stop being one of the crowd, following a distance, and you can enter into a relationship with him. And then the other characters that we meet in Mark's Gospel. um, Well, I'm just going to remind you of two or three of them. Um, do you remember that, that little ditty from Alice in Wonderland? Will you, won't you? Will you, won't you? Will you join the dance? Well, it's a bit like that, actually, with the other characters. So you've got Simon and Andrew, and they're sitting there. Um, when well, they're not sitting, actually, sorry. They're fishing. They're casting their net out into the sea. And Jesus past and said, walks past and says, follow me. Will they? Won't they? Will they? Won't they? Businessmen, doing quite well. Got a family, home, stable, everything's fine. Will they? Won't they? Will you? Would you? Levi, Levi's perhaps got even more to lose. He's a very prosperous businessman, doing very well. All through shady business practices, mind you, but he's doing very well. And he's sitting there and Jesus walks past. Follow me. Will he, won't he? Will he, won't he? Would you? And then there's that rich young man we've already talked about who comes after him and says, I want eternal life. I want what it is you're offering. Yes, sign me up for it. Jesus says that's just great but there's this big stumbling block in your life and you need to get rid of it you know all that money, all that stuff you've got it's in the way, get rid of it and then follow me will he, won't he will he, won't he would you and blind Bartimaeus, do you remember him on the road to Jerusalem one of the final miracles of Jesus' life And blind Bartimaeus, sitting there by the side of the road, shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd say, be quiet. Which one? Listen to him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes over and heals him. And he doesn't even say, follow me. But Bartimaeus, up he gets and follows. Would you? One final point. You know, those disciples, Peter and Andrew, the other disciples, when they started following, they didn't get it. They didn't know. They didn't understand. It wasn't all mapped out for them. It wasn't all clear. They just sort of followed on a hunch that he had something that they needed. It was just a hunch, if you like. It was a step of faith. They took a risk on him. And it was a long way down the line before they got anywhere near getting all the answers. A long way down the line. And you know, when Jesus called them, he knew they were going to let him down quite badly. He knew that they were going to all abandon him in that garden the night before he died. He knew that when he hung on the cross, they would be nowhere to be seen. He knew that they would just, at the crunch, lack the faith to heal that boy with epilepsy, even though he'd given them the power. He knew that they were going to bicker on the road about who was the greatest when they were walking along the road with the Son of God. He knew they were going to mess things up, squabble, make mistakes, try and talk him out of the cross, and abandon him. He knew that. He took a risk on them. So, I think Mark would say to you today, Jesus is willing to take a risk on you. He knows, actually, that you will let him down in the future and that's okay because he'll forgive you and be there for you still at the end of it. He's willing to take a risk on you. Don't wait until you understand it all. Don't wait until you get it all because that's not faith and you never will understand it all, actually. Are you willing to take a risk on him?